Well, good morning, everyone. It's uh, excellent to be here with you, presenting the Word of God to you, and uh, I look forward to what God has to say uh, through me at this time. Now, Alex, do we have uh, Sunday school this morning? We do, yep. Back to term, so back to Sunday school. So kids, feel free um, to go into, is that room there? That's the room over there, and uh, partake of Sunday school, highly recommended. Um, they do a great job, our Sunday school teachers, they plan a lot. And fair warning, there will be a few adult themes in this morning's sermon, so uh, you have been warned. But as we come to the Word of God, let's just commit ourselves to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, we just thank you that we can be here as a church and worship you and we thank you for the time that we've had where we've come before you and given you praise. We thank you for uh, the word that was read at the start of our service in, in Psalm 33 and we remember but, that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. He spoke and it came to be and we just give you praise for your word Lord. We just thank you that your word is powerful. It brought into being that which was not and Lord, we have your word today, we have your scriptures, your holy Bible, and, and we just praise you for that. We thank you that we're not lost, we're not hopeless, we're not misguided, we have the words of eternal truth. And Lord, as we hear them now, as I preach them now, Lord, we just pray that what you have said will shine forth, will take root deep in our hearts and will change us from the inside out. We just thank you so much for your word and, and for its incredible power. And uh, Lord, we look to you, we look to your word at this time, for only you have the words of eternal life. And we thank you so much for all that you are and all that you've revealed yourself to us. Amen. Allow me to share with you some statistics that I found from the National Survey of Family Growth. So they surveyed a, a bunch of people bunch of uh, Christians between the age of 18 and 22, and according to this survey, 65% of them have engaged in premarital sex. 48% have had multiple sexual partners. And of the people that had abstained from sex, they asked them the reasons as to why. 51% that said that it violated their moral code and their religion, but the others said things like, the opportunity hasn't presented itself and the timing's not right for premarital sex yet. So even the abstainers didn't have the right attitude before God. And it's not just the, the young and the unmarried. I looked at a survey from uh, the website Ashley Madison. Uh, it's, a, it's a cheating website. Their slogan is, life is short, have an affair. And they conducted a survey uh, from the people that were signed up with their website and that were also religious. And it turns out that 24% of people on this Ashley Madison cheating website were evangelical Christians. 24% prayed regularly. And so what this goes to show us is that we're in a real battleground. We know we're in a sex-saturated culture and we're bombarded by messages from the world day in, day out. They're a world that, that glorifies sex, that says have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want, do whatever you want. And yet we know that God's called us to something so much higher. And so we face a real battle and we dare not think ourselves immune from this particular sin. For many Christians have uh, stumbled in this area. And indeed what we're going to read this morning is what God's remedy for this is. 
for how we are to live in our sex-saturated culture and resist the lures of evil. I don't mean to discourage you this morning, I mean to provide hope because God has provided hope in his word. There was a culture much like ours that Paul wrote to and that was in Corinth. And so I'd like you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we're going to see how God would have us live in our sex-saturated culture. And while you're turning there, let me give you some information about the, the Corinthian culture. So if you read, if you read the uh, book of Acts in chapter 18, you'll think that the church in Corinth was absolutely fantastic because wonderful things happened in Corinth. Paul meets Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, Paul gets a, a personal promise from God that he's not going to be attacked. Lots and lots of people come to Christ, most of them Gentiles. It's a really, really positive time at that church in Corinth. But then when you read this letter, 1 Corinthians, that Paul wrote to that church later on, you realise they had some problems. They had a lot of problems. And one of those problems was sexual immorality. They were failing to stand apart from their culture. And as you read the book of 1 Corinthians, it really reads like you're looking at someone else's mail, which you are. Uh, but Paul, like every chapter, he's, he's addressing this issue, he's addressing that issue, he's rebuking him for this, he's correcting him in this way. And one of the things that he, he does in this letter is rebuke them and correct them for their thinking in the area of sexual morality. Now, the culture in Corinth was absolutely sex-saturated, similar to ours, but theirs was, was slightly different. So they had a, a massive temple to the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and it was your duty, like your, your civic duty or your religious duty, to go to the temple and to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And that was what was expected of the people in Corinth. And so the people that were getting saved here had a massive difficulty in separating themselves from the evils of the world. And so what does Paul, what does God through Paul have to say to these people? And what does God have to say to us to help us in this area? Well, what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at verses 12 through 20. And in these verses, what we're going to see is two countercultural principles that we can apply to our minds, and then we're going to see two applications that we can take to heart. There's going to be two principles, and from that, that's going to flow into two applications. So without further ado, let's get into it. And we'll look at the first principle, which is pursue what is best. The first principle is pursue what is best. We get this from verse 12. Read along with me, please. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. I find it really interesting that, that Paul starts his conversation, his discourse about how to deal with sex with this general principle, pursue what is best. Now, it seems that all things are lawful was a catch cry of the Corinthian church, something that they said. Maybe they even mentioned it in a letter that they wrote to Paul earlier. And as you read through Corinthians, you can just use your sanctified imagination and see the people in the church saying this, saying all things are lawful. Imagine the, the Greek ship worker who's had a, a big day and he goes home and he buys himself a nice steak and tucks into it. But then the Jewish Christian says, hey, that's meat sacrificed to idols. What are you doing? And the Christian might respond, hey, all things are permissible for me. All things are lawful. Or imagine the church service that the Corinthians may have gone to. And then all of a sudden, 20 people get up and start speaking in tongues. 
and they're having a great time communicating to God, but then someone after the service says, hey, that was, that was really confusing. What was going on there? And they say, all things are permissible. All things are lawful. These are things that the, the Corinthians did, if you read through the book of Corinthians. And they're not necessarily wrong. They are indeed lawful and permissible, but those people weren't pursuing what is best. And so this is the principle that Paul outlines here. He agrees all things are lawful, but he reduces its scope and he clarifies what's going on there. Now, just to be clear, when it says all things are lawful, that doesn't mean murder is lawful, that doesn't mean stealing is lawful. When it says all things are lawful, we're not talking literally about all things. What we're talking about is that that sphere of Christian liberty, those things that aren't expressly forbidden, which you are free to do in your Christian life. Things like eating, things like drinking, things like getting married, things like buying a house, all these things that we're free to do in our Christian liberty because we're not under a merciless God and we're not under a strict regime. And all these things are lawful for us. But we don't want to be going through life saying, all things are lawful for me, as in having that attitude. We don't want to be those Christians that say, isn't it okay when we could be asking, is it, what, is it what is best for God? And so what Paul reminds them is that they are to pursue what is best for God's work in the world, and they are to pursue what is best for God's work in themselves. And we can take that to heart as well. Pursue what is best for God's work in the world, and pursue what is best for God's work in yourself. You see, it's very easy to break down life into um, the secular and the Christian and say, I'm going to keep the commandments and then I'm going to go and do whatever it is that makes me happy. And I'm keeping the commandments so all my bases are covered. And it's easy for us to fall into that trap when by far the better approach, if we're pursuing what is best, would be I want to do everything, everything in my life to make God happy. And that will include keeping the commandments, but that will mean using my Christian liberty to bring honour to him as well, and making choices not because I can, but because I want to bring God glory. And that's what it would look like to pursue what is best for God's work in the world. If we go back to those Corinthians in the church, the one that was eating meat sacrificed to idols, he would have done better to do it in private, away from those who could be confused, away from those who could think, maybe this means idolatry is okay. He wasn't pursuing what is best and thinking of others. Those that were all speaking at the same time in tongues in the church service, sure, they might have had a great relationship with God at that time, but they weren't thinking of others and the chaos it caused in the church service. And so they needed to pursue what was best and keep quiet at that time. We don't want to be those that just proclaim all things are lawful for me, but not looking for what is best for God's work in the world. Paul goes on in the second half of verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And so we see we have to pursue what is best for God's work in ourselves as well. And Paul's really painting a picture of irony here. So all things are lawful for you. You, you can do what you want in your Christian liberty, but if you keep choosing to do the same thing, the same thing, the same thing, you become a slave to that thing in your Christian liberty. And it just makes no sense. That's not the way it should be. We're free in Christ to bring him honour. And we should be making those decisions, those everyday decisions, to do that 
which sanctifies us, to do that which brings us closer to God. Life, the Christian life, the way we honour God, isn't just about keeping the commandments, isn't just about avoiding clear-cut sins. It's about pursuing what is best with all of our decisions at every moment. And it doesn't matter necessarily what kind of job you have, it doesn't matter what kind of relationship you're in, it doesn't matter where you live, all of us are called to pursue what is best with our Christian liberty. That's our first countercultural principle that Paul makes clear in verse 12. The second countercultural principle, which is a big section, verses 13 to 17, is the body is important. The body is important. We get this from verses 13 to 17, so read along with me, please. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. (coughs) Having urged the Corinthians to pursue what is best, he now makes a crystal clear case that the body is important. And Paul does this because the thinking of the day was the opposite. The culture said the body is unimportant. You can do whatever you want with the body. Some people said it's good to be virtuous, but the body has nothing to do with virtue. And some people said, I really want my spirit to be free. And the body was viewed as some sort of temporary cage. But that's not God's view of the body at all. The body is very important. Now, in these verses, I found three uh, ways that the body is important. You might be able to find more. But three ways the body is important. And Paul uses contrast each time to make that clear. But he starts in a very unusual and small place. Verse 13, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Now again, this seems to have been a quote from the Corinthians, something that they said, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. And if you stop and think about it, it does make sense. I mean, food isn't going to be much good to you unless it gets into your stomach. And your stomach can't work unless it receives food. So in that sense, that's all fair enough. But what Paul is doing is he's broadening their horizon. He says, God will destroy them both. And so if that was a motto of the Corinthian church, it was a very short-sighted motto. It was a very temporary way to look at the world. You don't just have your motto for life, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. That would run counter to the first principle, pursue what is best. And so Paul's asking them to look a little bit beyond their own stomach. The other thing that's quite dangerous with this, this motto, this slogan, is that seems to indicate that it's all good to satisfy your appetite. And the Corinthians may well have taken that further. So if you're hungry, you should eat. If you're itchy, you should scratch. And if you have sexual urges, you should act on them. That seems to have been the Corinthian thinking at the time. And they were using this slogan as justification for their sexual acts. Indeed, they're their sinful acts. But Paul rebukes that. And he does that 
very cleverly when he says, now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now one thing he does there, you might notice, is he uses the word body as opposed to just a part of the body. And that indicates quite clearly that sexual acts aren't limited to one part of your body. They involve your whole body. So unlike the stomach for food, we have the whole body is not for sexual immorality. But he provides the noble purpose, the body is for the Lord. Now, if that doesn't tell you that the body is important, I don't know what will. The body is for the Lord. It has a noble purpose, the most noble purpose there is. Your body, that physical thing that you are in, can be used to bring honour to God, to glorify God, to make God happy. And that's incredible. These bodies that we tend not to think of too highly as we go about our daily lives are for the Lord and can bring Him glory. And that's what Paul is emphasising here. This body is important. He goes on to say, and the Lord for the body. Our God is is pro-body. He made Adam and Eve and He made them with bodies and it was good. The Lord is delighted when we use our bodies to serve Him. God is pro-body. The body is important. And then we get to verse 14, and we see that the body is important not just because it's for God, but because it's eternal. Verse 14 reads, And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, I like to think of verse 14 as a Corinthian coming up to Paul and having a bit of a conversation, and Paul using the yes, yes approach. So I'm just going to, this is what it would look like in my mind. So the Corinthian goes, Hey, Paul, the body's not very important. Oh, is that right? What about Jesus? Did he have a body? Yes. Did he get raised from the dead in that body? Yes. And Jesus still has that body today and will have it for eternity? Yes. And you, you have a body that will be raised as well? Yes. And so, Jesus has a body, Jesus was raised, Jesus will have that body for eternity, and every single person in the church has a body that will be raised for eternity, and you're trying to say the body is unimportant. And I think that's what Paul is saying here. The conclusion is quite clear. God is going to raise up these bodies. We're going to have these bodies for eternity. Not these exact bodies. We're going to have better resurrected bodies. But we're going to have bodies. The body is important. And so we don't treat the body like it's trash. We don't treat the body like it's sinful. And we don't treat the body like it has no significance. It has eternal significance. Jesus had a body, so let's not be those that belittle the body. The body is certainly important. It's for God, it's eternal, and as we get to verse 15, we see that the body is also one with Christ. Read verse 15 with me, please. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. It's a sentence you just need to Think about and meditate for a while. Your bodies are members of Christ. Now, I was just thinking, you know, I I have a pinky finger. That is a a member of my body. And my pinky finger does not decide when it wants to wiggle. I decide when I want my pinky finger to wiggle. I want it to wiggle now. See, I'm controlling that. It's a member of my body. My pinky does what I want it to do. And that's the picture of us being members of Christ. He is the one that we are obligated to follow. He is the one that we are to obey. 
because we are one with him. And it's certainly a countercultural way of thinking. It's certainly a different way of thinking, that our bodies exist to honour God, that our bodies are one with him and are there to do his bidding, not just satisfy whatever appetites we have. Paul continues along this uh, line to show the ridiculousness of saying that it's okay to uh, have sex with a prostitute. When he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Now this is indeed ridiculous. Would you go up to your wife and say, Hey, I think you should sleep with another man? Of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't want her to do that. And so it is when we would use our bodies, if a Christian uses their bodies to sleep with a prostitute or to have sexual immorality, they're forcing Christ to have sexual immorality because they are members of Christ. The oneness that we have with Christ completely excludes any possibility of making it okay for sexual immorality. It shows you the significance of the sin. And so if we have a right view of the body, if we recognize that the body is important, it helps motivate us to treat it with respect that God intended. And the body is certainly important. Some people in Corinth may have thought the body was unimportant. They may have thought that uh, sexual intercourse was just a bodily thing and thus it didn't matter. But verse 16 puts that to bed. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says shall become one flesh. The act of sexual intercourse is an act which causes two to become one. It's a oneness that exists, and it's a oneness that should only exist within the bounds of marriage. And so God makes clear the body is important. It's important because it's for God, it's important because it's eternal, and it's important because it's one with Christ. And for these reasons, we are to recognise that the body is important. And that takes us to the turning point of the passage, the turning point of the sermon. And so uh, Paul has made clear a couple of principles here. Pursue what is best, and the body is important. And that brings us to the so what. That brings us to the, the applications. We're going to see a couple of applications. And the first one is simply those first three words in verse 18. So our first application this morning, flee sexual immorality. Flee sexual immorality. I can't say that any better than, than Paul, so I'm just running with that as my point. Flee sexual immorality. Now, to explore this further, we just need to be crystal clear as to what sexual immorality is. So, I say this, and I say this humbly because I'm standing here that many years after the writings of Paul, after the teachings of Jesus, and can lean on other people's understandings. Because for a long time, the church has not had a great view of sex. So if you look at the early church fathers, you look at Augustine, who did some wonderful things, you look at Jerome, they had a very poor view of sex. They would say that sex is wrong, full stop, end of story. And that was the view of many early church fathers. Augustine actually confessed to God when he enjoyed sex with his wife. And for a long time, the teaching of the church has been, sex is not something you should pursue, it's just something that you should begrudgingly do to propagate the population. And the church believed that for a long period of time. But thankfully, some, some good thinkers have come along within the church and recognized that, hey, sex is actually a good thing. It's a good thing that God invented, that God designed, and God made good, even though he didn't have to. Of course, it's only to be enjoyed in a husband-wife relationship. Sex is good within the confines that God has placed it, which is within marriage. 
between a husband and wife. And so that's good sex. In fact, sex is so good that there's a book of the Bible entirely devoted to it. And if you want to know more about that, ask Chad after the service. He's an expert in that. (laughs) I have to throw you under the bus, Chad. You do it to me all the time. (laughs) But no, sex is good within within the bounds of marriage, husband and wife. Of course, any sex outside of that is sexual immorality. Any sex that is not between a husband and a wife is sexual immorality. And so that's going to include premarital sex and that's going to include extramarital sex, having an affair. And that's the kind of sexual immorality that Paul is having in mind when he says flee in verse 18. But I'd like to think about that word flee as well. Flee. What does it mean to flee? What, what kind of things do you flee? So if there was a, a ravenous, hungry tiger right here, I imagine you would all flee or be eaten, okay? If there was an angry mob with torches and pitchforks coming right at you, you would flee. The kind of things that we flee are dangerous things, are are deadly things. And that's one of the points Paul is making here. Sexual immorality is indeed dangerous, very dangerous, deadly. And thus, we are to flee it. And I find it really significant that he's used the word flee here. Because Paul could have said, abstain from sexual immorality. He could have said, just don't do it. But he says flee, the connotation of running in the complete opposite direction. It's a lot more extreme. And so I think we need to be a lot more extreme in our application of this. I don't think it's enough to say, let's just live our lives normally, and then when the temptation comes, we'll try and resist it. I think we need to be actively making decisions in our life to flee sexual immorality. So we have a line, and I I love lines. I love black and white. I love knowing that there's a line you shouldn't cross. And I think we can be the same. And sometimes when we know there's a line, we'll just kind of tiptoe towards it, just kind of tiptoe, tiptoe closer, and then we'll get to here, like, oh, we're still on this side of the line, it's all good. But of course, then it's a lot easier for Satan to tempt us and for us to make that decision and go across. But that's not what Paul's saying here. He's saying, there's the line, flee, run as fast as you can in the opposite direction. So we've got to make some decisions in our life. Now, what might that look like? Well, maybe there's a a website you go to and it is a a perfectly normal website, but it has highly sexualized advertising. Just don't go to that site. Flee. Or maybe there's a, a sign on the road as you drive home and it's a a very sexual sign, just take a different route home. Take the longer way home. Use your Christian liberty to pursue what is best, not just say all things are lawful. Flee. We don't even want to get close to this stuff. I'm reminded of Jesus' words. If your right arm causes you to sin, chop it off. He had a very radical approach to sanctification. And I think we too need to be a bit more radical when it comes to our sanctification. And in our culture, which indeed is sex-saturated, we need to take steps to protect ourselves, to honour the Lord, and to flee. And the church in Corinth was in the same boat. They had to flee sexual immorality. One more way you can flee sexual immorality that I'd like to share with you, because I think it's great individually and as a church, is we should really be aiming to have confidants, to have people that we can confide in and we can share in. 
share our lives, even share our sins, even share our sexual sins. And I think that's a great goal to have because that will be helping not only you individually to flee sexual immorality, but helping others as well. Of course, to get there, it's going to take a long time. To get there, it's going to take a lot of work. For you ladies to find a lady confidant, for you men to find a male confidant, there's some things that have to change. And perhaps even in yourself, there's some things that have to change. Ask yourself, am I the kind of person that a Christian brother or a Christian sister could come up to and confide in? Share their life. Share their sin. Share their sexual sin. And if you're not that kind of person, maybe God is calling you to become that kind of person, to become more compassionate, to become more open, more friendly, to become less judgy. We want to be those people that can help our brothers and sisters in this area. Because this, of course, is written to a church. It's not written to individuals. And as a church, we want to be promoting a culture of having confidence so that we can all flee sexual immorality, running as far away from it as possible. And that's our, our first application, to flee sexual immorality. And as we come to our final application, now our concluding application, it's really significant because it's going to tie in together all the other three things that we've seen this morning. But before we look at our final application, now let's just read verses 18 to 20 and finish off Paul's thoughts on the matter. Let's start at verse, uh, start at verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Our final application for this morning is glorify God in your body. And again, I'm just using the words of Paul because he says it so well. And the final application, glorify God in your body, is the summation of all the things that have come before. As you look at the rest of verse 18, it's basically just saying that immoral sex is a sin against the body, and that's a big deal because the body is important. You get to verse 19, and we see that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, if any of you have been reading um, Solomon and the construction of the temple and all the the glamour and the, the beauty that went into that, you'll recognise that housing God is no small deal. It's, it's quite a big deal. Again, emphasising that the body is important. And so we need to recognise that. But I love what Paul says at the end of verse 19 there, you are not your own. Now talk about a countercultural thought. In our world, we'll hear things like, it's my body, I can do what I want with it. In the world, you'll hear, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. And yet God is saying, you are not your own. Now think about it, we have the Holy Spirit inside us. Who owns who? Does, does the house own the owner, or does the owner own the house? I can't even ask that without it being incredibly obvious. The Spirit dwells in us, the Spirit is God, God owns us. And it's an incredibly humbling thought that as we go through life, We're not doing whatever we can to satisfy our bodies. We're doing it to honour God because he owns us. 
And then Paul mentions those beautiful words at the start of verse 20, for you were bought at a price. And it's very important that we stop and consider this just so we get right perspective. And it's always good to get right perspective when it comes to sanctification. We were bought at a price. We're not, we're not doing all these things. We're not called to do all these things because God is a, is a harsh God with a stick saying, jump higher, jump higher. We're doing this because God loves us. He loves us so, so, so much. So much that the Father sent his Son to die. So much that the Son willingly died. We were bought at a price. And we're not just saved from hell. We're saved for good works. God's love is so great that he takes us and he even makes us better, not leaving us in the bad state we were. And even once we're saved, he continues to help make us better. We were bought at a price. It's good news. God has not given up on you yet. And we can be so grateful for that. I know I am. You were bought at a price. Again, it's a good thought to run through your mind as you consider Jesus, consider what Jesus did on the cross. He endured the whips, the scourgings, crown of thorns on his head, nails in his hands and his feet, hanging on a cross and suffocating. And that's what Jesus did to his body for you. And so the question does remain, what are we willing to do with our bodies for him? We were bought at a price. We, we dare not forget that. It gives us the right perspective, reminding, of his God, reminding us of God's love and reminding us of our, our duty, our obligation to serve our loving God. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And this is our, our application. And this is really the, the summary of all the things that have gone before, like I said. So when Paul gave that general countercultural principle to pursue what is best, you can't pursue anything better than glorifying God. That's the ultimate highest pursuit. When we're glorifying God in our body, we can't do that unless we recognize the body is important. You have to know that your physical body can actually be used to bring glory to God and recognize that your body is important before you can glorify God in your body. And even with the, the flee sexual immorality, our first application, that's the negative statement, the running away from what is wrong and taking steps, radical steps to get as far away from that as possible. But the glorify God in your body is the positive side of that. Because life's not just about steering clear of sins, it's about making good choices in our Christian liberty to bring honour to God. And so in a nutshell, if you want to summarise everything I've said, everything Paul said here, it's glorify God in your body. And so we want to be those that, that make choices to glorify God in our body. R.C.H. Lenski said that people who glorify God in their body are showing others that their body belongs to God. And it's visible that you serve someone else. So to glorify God in your body, there's a lot of different ways you can do that. I'll just share one with you, which regards eating. So we all eat. We all do it. It's good. It's good to eat. But think about you know, what you eat. Think about how often you eat. Think about how much you eat. And these are all decisions that you can make individually in your own Christian liberty. And that's great. But as you make these decisions, your primary goal should not be, I'm here to satisfy my appetite. It should be, I'm here to bring honour to God. And so that'll include things like giving thanks, 
That'll include things like eating in moderation. In fact, that might even include things like fasting, which is a good practice. And fasting is a good practice because, well, one, it's using your body to honour God. If your motivation is to serve God when you fast, then that's a way to glorify God in your body. Fasting is also good because it shows that you're not being mastered by anything. You don't want to be mastered by anything. You want to be in control. And so fasting is, is but one way that you can glorify God in your body. So think about, maybe even this week, what you can fast and what you can fast from. But really, glorify God in your body is something that we should be thinking about all the time. Your, uh, your feet, where could they go that could glorify God? Your hands, whom could they serve to show God's love? Your mouth, what could it say to bring honour to God and praise Him? These are all decisions that we can make moment by moment, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week, remembering that we're here to glorify God. And I think the beautiful thing about the way this wraps up is, when we're doing that, when we're recognising that every moment of our life is captive to Christ, and we want to spend all that we have and do all that we can to bring God glory and glorify God in our bodies, if we're thinking like that all the time, then when sexual temptation comes, we'll be better prepared to deal with it. It won't be something that comes as a shock. We'll say, we're glorifying God in our body and the decision will be clearer, the temptation will be weaker. And so that's what I urge you to do this morning, brothers and sisters. Glorify God in your body. Recognise that your body is valuable. Recognise that you're here for so much more than just avoiding sins, that you're here to pursue what is best. Flee sexual immorality. Take those radical steps to get as far away from it as possible. And in all things, glorify God in your body. For you are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Can I ask us to stand? I'd like to close this morning with a benediction as we consider our great God, our great enabling God, Let's go from this place giving praise to him. Benediction from Jude. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.